What's up, my friends? JD here. And on today's show, I am talking with Dr. Mathan Kendula, founder and CEO of Advent. Now, this is a man who started off as a professional practicing doctor in a clinic and then saw the light, saw the big business opportunity, went from one location to 14 locations, and he's going to be coast to coast before too long. You just wait and see. And what's interesting is as we get into the into the episode, you're going to hear us talk about Traction, the book. For all you business nerds out there, you're going to love this part of the conversation, EOS, and the other book, The E-Myth, which really changed the way the doctor was thinking and had him move from being just a professional practicing doctor to a true CEO. And I think... This conversation is going to be really important for people that are owner operators and really want to break out and become true business owners and not just people who own their job. We're going to get into the details of how you make that happen and how you really push that transition forward. Really, really practical stuff, not just raw, raw, you can do it. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in real hardcore, how do you make the moves? And you're going to get that today. That's coming up, but just a second. If you love this kind of stuff, if you want to show me your love, I want you to go to Apple. I want you to go to Spotify, leave a rating and a review. Let me know what you think. Now let's get to the episode. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Dr. Kendula, thanks so much for joining today. I'm really excited about the conversation. So I was looking at Advent. I uh, found you on LinkedIn and I kind of just went down a rabbit hole on the company. Why don't you give us a high level? And then I've got a ton of questions I want to ask you. Yeah. So, you know, Advent is a more medical practice and we are in the ENT space. ENT is ear, nose and throat, but more specifically, the nose and throat space. So what we do as a company is we provide office-based solutions for folks who have trouble breathing through their nose, sinus infections, allergy issues, snoring, sleep apnea. So we, you know, the nose and throat isn't a category by itself. So we've kind of defined the category or used a, a coined a name for the category, which is the breathing triangle. So if you think about sort of the three holes in your head, your two nostrils and, and the back of your mouth, those are the three passageways through which we all breathe. And many folks, like really more than half the country is suffering from issues in those areas that there are nowadays simple solutions for most of those folks. And unfortunately, the issue for those people who have these issues isn't so much that the solutions don't exist, is there's no way for them to connect to those solutions. So Advent is a medical practice that's trying to sort of change that. So we've got 14 locations in the upper Midwest. We started in Milwaukee. So Wisconsin, Illinois, Minnesota, Indiana, and um, certainly looking to expand beyond that. And how long have you guys been around for? Uh, yeah, founded in 2004. And my wife is an audiologist. So the two of us founded our practice. Back when we were founded, though, we were really a traditional ENT practice. So we did, we, you know, I was just came out of training. And my wife was also just out of training. And so we set up a shop, started doing what we did. And, you know, it's kind of a typical traditional ENT practice for probably a decade or so. And so 2004, 2014, that's sort of one era. 2014, I'll just call it to current, you know, different era. And then we'll see what the future holds. So yeah, it's it's interesting. So you came out of out of school and decided you wanted to start a medical practice, which I'm sure a lot of medical students have the ambition to do that. And then you did that for 10 years. And then why... So what was the trigger for this entrepreneurial journey to say, okay, now we're going to have not one, but 10 or 20 or 30 different offices? 
It was seeing over that, that first part of my career, sort of starting practice till 2014, that first decade, it was, you know, just it's sort of how I'm wired as I'm always looking for a leg up for my patients. I'm always looking for, hey, is there something out there that I can bring in that we can incorporate in what we're doing and bring my patients, you know, better results? And the reality is in that first part of my career, so about, you know, sort of the first few years, there were groundbreaking advances within my field, especially the nose and sinus part of things. So in office CT imaging, uh, meaning when people, I don't know if people think about CT scans, but if you do, most people think about these big machines that sit in these big places and you have to go in. In-office CT is basically a very compact, like if you've ever, I mean, if you've been to the dentist and have dental x-rays, in-office CT is more similar to that than it is to a traditional CT. So that was one of big advance. Balloon sinuplasty is a technology that we can use to open the sinuses up in the office, which is a very simple thing to do. So anyway, regardless these simple things were things that I incorporated very early and people, you know, we got good results and therefore people told other people. And so what ended up happening is we would get people coming in from all over the place. Like when, so we started in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, which is just a suburb of Milwaukee. And, you know, really very shortly after we started the practice, we were having people coming in from not only all over Wisconsin, but from Illinois, and then people would be flying in and from other countries and sounds great, but, to me, it, w- it was a bit sad because in my mind, I knew there wasn't anything, there's nothing special about me. These tools and technologies, there's something unique about them. But, you know, I think people, I felt bad that people had to travel so far for sort of relatively simple solutions. And I, I sort of started to kind of try to think about, well, what can I do about that? I mean, I can, con- I can continue to sit here and, and allow people to come to me, or I can figure out how to sort of institutionalize what I'm doing, create processes around the, those things, and then flip it the other way where we can, hey, we can get closer to where people are at. And that's, that's all we're doing. So I remember years ago, I had to have a hernia repaired. And I mm-hmm. went to this place called the Shouldice Clinic in Toronto. And, okay. and when I was there, I was told that people come in from all over the world to go to Shouldice to have you know hernias done. And, and I got to admit, it was really cool. It was kind of like, I describe it like a country club where they mm-hmm. happened to do hernia repairs. Uh, <laughs> right. And it was, it was actually kind of a good experience other than the fact that I had to have a minor surgery. It was cool. So I think to myself, okay, so was your clinic sort of like that in the sense that everyone sort of just knew, hey, if you want this to be done, this is the place to go and it happens to be in Wisconsin? Yeah, pretty much. Basically just that. And again, while there's something cool, and if you basically, if you think about your story and you had an issue that this, that basically this was the place, that was the place to go. If you have this issue, so you're going to go and go there. And the good news is, you know, I think that you're going to likely be in really good hands. This is what they do. They're known for this. And so, and it's all good, but it's still relatively limited as far as the the amount of people that they could they could reach. And so like I think and I didn't know this sort of when I started on this journey, but it, over over the course of kind of this last arc of time is is my goal is to is to maximize my reach as well as my impact. And so, you know, at the clinic you're describing, they're maximizing their impact, but their reach is relatively limited, I would assume, unless they're going to choose to do something about that, something different about that. And so, you know, if you try to maximize for both of those things, it forces you to think about what's the sweet spot there. And you know, I don't think most people in medicine, I know most people in medicine don't think like that. And that's part of the problem, unfortunately, when it comes down to it. 
Right. It is a totally different model. Like the one I'm describing is much more of a, almost like a Betty Ford clinic. Like, yeah, if you have the money and the time, sure, you can do it. But let's be honest, if you want to serve the public and really be available to the most number of people, make the most impact, you've got to be closer to home, of course. Yeah, no, agreed. Agreed. And I think, uh, though, I mean, I mean, I guess where I'm going is we could have the fork in the road that I chose to kind of go one way versus the other was the fork that it basically over that first arc of my career with the decision I could have made or we could have made would have been to kind of contract ourselves down, make our resource more and more scarce and therefore, you know, be able to, you know, in, in healthcare, it's hard to do this. But basically, if you think about any other business, you can make yourself scarce and jack the price up and, sure. and increase the barriers to entry or, or you can do the opposite, which is kind of, it's not about price by itself, but I think it's more about the ability to reach people. And either you want to limit your, you want to limit your reach and take advantage of that opportunity, or you want to maximize your reach and take advantage of that opportunity. So, yeah. So what, what were the steps you took? You're at one clinic, I'm assuming you owned it with your wife or I don't know if you had other investors, but so you're, you're the owner of this clinic. How yep. do you then go about to open clinic number two, three, and four? Yeah, I think, you know, well, two and three were different than four and beyond. So two and three were really, especially two. I mean, I, I don't want to bore you with details, but I'd say when we went from Please, point, I love details. <laughs> going from going from one to two was really like, hey, we're doing something here that seems to be working. And we want to grow it, but I didn't have a I didn't really understand what what it was going to take to do that. So when we opened our second location, which was also here in Milwaukee, it was just on the other side of town. And we hired a doc and brought him in here. And, and it's sort of just sort of setting him up in a physical plant space that looked similar to our original one and sort of kind of tried to pass along or, or sort of co-pollinate, hey, this is what we're doing, kind of try to do it. But it wasn't very formulaic. And it was fine, but it basically created more it basically created a little bit more problems than what it was than the good it was doing. Meaning that when I went from one to two, I saw clearly like, gosh, if we try to do the next, you know, go from two to three like this, we're going to be consumed by just trying to get everything on the same page. And so it was kind of a a learning lesson. And and again, I get my dates right. I don't get my dates clear in my head sometimes, but basically around that same time, there's a book called E-Myth Revisited. I don't know if that's a book that you're familiar with. So I read that book. Legendary. You know, this is sort of the nice place that I come from is I've never taken a business class in my life. I've never, prior to me going on this journey, never been exposed to any of this stuff. And the only place I ever got any of this stuff was my wife being in the hearing side of things. We'd go to conferences that were put on by the hearing aid manufacturers. And there was a lot of talk about sales and marketing and process and so forth and so on. So I would go just, I tag along with her. And that's actually where Emeth Revisited came from. It came from a company she was working with. She, so there's a book that's sitting there in my house. I picked it up and it's a pretty small book. I picked it up. I read it pretty quickly because it's a quick read. And that was the epiphany. I, I think it's the pie baker or whatever it was, the analogy that he uses throughout the book. But it's, it was exactly that. It's like, gosh, I've created this this cage for myself. And it's, it's, a, it's fine, you know, but there's a fork in the road there too, where as do I want to make the bars more and more and more solid and trap myself more and more, or do I want to free myself? And so I read that and it opened my eyes in many ways. This is around that same era. But it's the problem with 
E-Myth Revisited, at least how I read it, is it's not very actionable. It can call it points out a problem, but it doesn't really point you in a clear direction to, well, what are you going to do about it? And so I don't remember the timeline, but I, I want to say six months or a year thereafter, I read the book um, Traction, so EOS, and that was pivotal. So it was 20... That I know clearly. It was 2016 when I read... Towards the end of 2016 when I uh, read EO or Traction and uh, read it, I was like, I can see here a playbook that could show me the way forward. And so again, long story short, read Traction, saw you know sort of the, the light at the end of the tunnel, found an implementer. We incorporated or, or you know, used that system starting in 2017. And um, that change the course of the company without any question. And simple thoughts, simple process. And I know there's controversy about traction. And I think it's... I, I know there's a controversy about it. But at the end of the day, all I can say about traction and EOS is that without that book, same tools, different package, it never got to me. Same tools, right package, right marketing, right sales, however you want to call it, got to me. And I view that very similar to kind of what I do as, as a business is you take the same tools and if you don't introduce them properly to your end user, they're useless. It's useless to them. And so Vern Harnish, I think, is the one who sort of is a little miffed at the, the whole traction stuff. But anyway, I'll stop blathering. But I'd say that, that's, that's the story. So traction <laughs> was, yeah. was basically allowed me to have the clarity I needed to lead this organization in a forward direction. So yeah. Okay, every every entrepreneur listening, you need to rewind and listen to the last three and a half minutes again because you just dropped so much gold there. So a couple of things. First of all, this is every everybody's bookshelf should have those two, and and others, but yeah. Emith and Traction are, are mm-hmm. must reads for any any business owner. A lot of people get stuck in this world of, as you said, I have a bakery, so my job should be baking pies. Well, that's your job on day one. But if you have a second and third or fourth location, you should never be baking pies. You should have a great system for pie bakers to bake pies. And then you could hire more pie bakers and open more restaurants. And so that's a huge learning that most small business owners never get over and therefore never have the opportunity to grow their business because they're too too busy doing the thing instead Mm -hmm. of empowering others to do the thing. So I love that point. So you mentioned traction and traction is is I mean I've read traction I haven't necessarily implemented it fully but I'm curious to understand you mentioned that you didn't have an implementer and you and you found an implementer was that the biggest hurdle for you were there other things that you learned from the traction and the EOS system that helped you move forward No I mean I guess I remember the the decision on can we just do this on our own or do we need somebody to help us and you know, I'm so thankful that we got somebody to help us because I really don't think it can be done on your own. I, I think that's one of those, that's my, if I have lessons that I've learned, and not that I learned that as a mistake, I learned that as a, we're going to be proactive about this. And, you know, I, I'll state that very clearly. I know if we didn't use an implementer for our traction rollout, it never would have happened. It would probably exploded on launch. It would have frustrated me. We would have gone, you know, moved on. But it's an investment. I mean, it, you know, it's an investment both in money and time. And it seems sort of like, I mean, gosh, for those listeners who've read Traction, it's not rocket science. It's, you know, it's very, very sort of simple, actionable things. Can you, um, can you give an example of one or two things that your implementer did that would have blown up for you? Yeah, I, I think just out of the gate, sort of kind of core purpose, our core values, our meeting cadence. They call they don't call it an org chart. It's an accountability chart. Those sorts of things. So I, I have a very very specific example. 
EOS uses something called an accountability chart, which takes the basic major functions in a business and, and it depends how small or big your business is, but basically there's sales, there's marketing, there's finance, you know, there, there's so forth and so on. So you put them up there and they're just boxes and you define, Hey, these are the things that, that are the responsibilities of these particular areas. Don't put names up there, but you're just putting, you're just as a group, as your leadership team, you're putting them up there. Then after you do that, then you go about and saying, okay, well, who's currently, whose name is currently doing these functions? And you put people's names up there and what you'll find, what we found is that it's the same person's name as like four boxes. And, you know, yet somebody else is sitting here and, and they're like at a half a box. And it allowed us to have conversations in a meaningful way by externalizing some of these these thought processes. Because the thing that will get in the way of any entrepreneur, in my mind, being successful is you get kind of back into where you are. And just if you kind of focus on the accountability chart concept is there are people who are doing things because they need to be done, but they may not be good at all at doing them. They may not want to do them, but they're here for the ride. They're here for the vision and they'll do what they need to do. And I think once you sort of say, hey, time out, let's make sure that this is, you know, we, we are structured for success here what you'll likely find is that you're not. And then, then again, with an implementer there, when there's somebody who's not part of your organization, who's now able to talk about it from a dispassionate way or in a dispassionate way, it allows you to have a frank conversation that you otherwise wouldn't. And it basically accelerates your, your pathway through there. And I, I don't know, I mean, I, how do you say this? I'm sure there are companies out there who've implemented on their own. I'm on the strong belief that those companies have compromised their ability to use that system. I don't, I, I guess I'm, how do you say, I'm, I believe I hold strong beliefs and I kind of hold them loosely, but this one, the more I think about it, I'm like anybody who fools themselves into thinking that they can self-implement EOS and traction is fooling themselves. You're going to squander resource and you're going to squander time and it's better time and resource better spent if you have it on just finding somebody who does this for a living. Yeah. Yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. Yeah, and and I've heard I've heard a lot of similar stories about people winning with that system. So let's yeah. go back to to your story here. So you get to so you get past two and three. I'm assuming you put a much better operating system in place. What was it like going from four to I think you said fourteen locations? It was different kinds of growing pains, more growing pains of you know an organization, the organization that's required to run a you know four clinic operation is actually different in so many ways from one that, you know, is done doing 10 or 13 or 14 or beyond. Though the organization necessary for 13, 14 and beyond, those are they've got much more similarities, if that makes sense. And so it was going from I'm trying to give a better analogy to this, but I feel like it's almost like a an animal that lives in a shell. And at each point of that journey, you know that you're going to bump up against that unless you're going to have to break it apart, meaning you're going to have to destroy your house or your, you know, everything you know, you're going to have to destroy it and open up your sensitivities to the world to create that next, you know, structure that you need. And you're just going to keep doing, having to do that. And the temptation, the bigger you get, the harder it is to destroy that that you hold precious. Maybe that's not true. Now, as I said that, I'm like, gosh, you know, when you're smaller, you know, it's maybe it is, it, maybe it's a scary period. It's a different level of scariness. I think why it gets scarier when you're getting bigger is that there are more people along for the ride and, and it's, it's different. When it was me and my wife, and it literally was the two of us when we started the practice, if we, you know, explode on launch here, I mean, it's horrible. It's horrible for our livelihoods, our family and everything that we know, but it's, we are the ones who are controlling our fate. 
as you get bigger, you know, we've got about 260 employees at this point. And so there's, there are a lot of people whose families and livelihood rely on the organization that we've created. And it becomes, you have to be much more thoughtful about the timing and, and, um, how you're going to go about doing that. And it's so true. You're, you're, you're feeding a lot more people than just you and your wife. There's a, a, a lot of people counting on you here. Absolutely. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, I mean, I guess the sort of the, I still have a very strong entrepreneurial spirit. And I think that's the thing I'm hoping, I'm hoping to implant that mindset into the organization. I mean, I, I want this organization to live beyond my time here. And when it does though, I, I'm going to do everything in my power to implant that those entrepreneurial aspects into it. Because I think big organizations, where they go wrong is they, they lose that. They lose sight of that. And that's a recipe for disaster. And so I don't want that to happen here. But it's like this balance of we have to become more professional, more buttoned up because that's necessary to, to succeed in the world that, that I'm, you know, I've created for myself. Yet, again, if back to that kind of destroying what's so, what's so precious, that, that's the entrepreneurial spirit, in my opinion, is creating something from nothing. And, you know, I think in life and in business, certainly everybody, I think you feel like you're holding on to something that is stable, but the reality, there's nothing stable. There's nothing guaranteed. You know, what you think you have is simply a moment in time from where you were to where you're going. And while it's a very important thing, the world is looking to destroy you and everything that you built. And if you're not, if you don't have that mindset, the world will destroy you. And then I'd say, and if you don't have that mindset, Good for the world and good for you because you deserve to be destroyed. If that makes sense, I mean, there, there's you cannot you cannot check it down. You cannot sort of be passive about it. You always have to have that active, aggressive mindset. Yeah, our producer needs to take that last fifteen seconds and just make that the TikTok clip because that <laughs> that is the entrepreneurial spirit. It's the reality is yes. Every day you wake up and go to work, someone is trying to kill your business. And if they're not trying to clear your business, it means that you're not, you're not making a dent yet. So you need to work harder exactly. to, to become noticed so that at some point, somebody will say, Hey, look at, look at those guys. We should do what they're doing. Quick break here while I tell you about something really exciting I've been working on called the Business Essentials Kit. Here's the deal. I get asked all the time, John, how do you run your business effectively? What's the best way to build a website? How do I get a branded email? How do I save on legal fees? How do I manage my social media? So what I've done is I've put a kit together for you for free. You can download it at johndavids.com with all the tools and services that I use to run my business. Get it right now for free at johndavids.com. How important was it to get the, the financial piece right? I think what a lot of people... Well, there's two pieces to this. So A, if it's not going to work financially at one location or two, it's not going to work at 10 or 15. Was that something that you guys struggled with? Did you sort of have a good sense of your numbers and make sure that you were cash flowing in the early days? Or is that something that you've been struggling with uh, throughout? It's something that having my own medical practice, in order to have your own medical practice versus being employed by another practice, a big hospital, whatever the case may be, part and parcel to that is that if you're going to have a... Then, you need to, then in order to have your own medical practice, you have to be able to practice medicine in a sound way that delivers results and outcomes to your patients. But you also simultaneously have to be able to deliver medicine in a profitable way that allows you to keep lights on, allows you to deliver that same, those same services to future patients. And where physicians go horribly wrong is finding the balance between those two things. And you can err either way. But you know, I think it's, 
I guess over the course of my career, I've been able to kind of see pretty clearly about what that balance needs to look like. And I haven't honestly been, I have not sort of, my focus is always on, on, on my patient with the mindset that in order for this thing to survive and exist, I've got to make sure that we're not doing stupid things and we are not jeopardizing the health organization. But my focus has never been, and it currently still is not on sort of the, the dollars and cents as a primary. It's a secondary. It's sort of like a secondary check. I mean, how I have always operated is, you know, you focus on your patient, you do everything in your power to deliver the best care possible. You do it in a mindful way, you know, as far as resources go. And then you check and see, well, how are we doing? Are we, is this sustainable? Is this something that's, that's doing okay? And thankfully, you know, historically, it, it consistently has been. And so over time, it's just been refining that more and more. And I, I guess what I haven't been faced with is a true, I don't know what you want to call it, fork in the road. I keep going to that analogy today, but I've not been, I mean, it, yeah, exactly. I've never, I have not been put in a position where it's like, you know, you have to compromise your medical care in order to run a profitable organization. Which I think I think the challenge again in, in medicine, I think you know the challenge is is, is the pricing is so screwed up, the whole thing is so screwed up. We participate in that screwed up system, yet you know in a typical business, if you're focusing on the financial aspects, if you are running into cash crunch, if you if you are running into issues from a profitability standpoint, well, you can change your pricing structure. You can do a lot of things. For us, and this isn't an excuse. I'm just saying it's a reality. It, it's a le- it's one lever. It's one less lever than that I have that most people do have, and so that could be a problem. I mean, just with blunt honestly, it it could be a problem because there's not much that I can do there. Are you so? Do you do people pay for your services through insurance, or do you? Is it a free market rate? Can you charge what you want? It's through insurance mostly. So it's like basically 90, almost, almost, it's not quite 100% insurance based, but it's mostly insurance based. And so, and so the price, insurance company is setting the prices pretty much. Basically, I mean, we, we, yes, although just to be technically honest, we set our price, we set our pricing in relation to our insurance contracts. So it ends up being the insurance company setting our pricing, even though nobody will admit that fact. And at the end of the day, if you just look at the technical, like, no, that's not quite true, but it kind of is true. So, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. So you're, yeah, I don't, I don't talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who ha- who work in a market where, as you said, they they don't have the ability. Because you know, one thing, just talking to an, an, another entrepreneur, I could say, well, you know, you're charging three hundred dollars for this. You should be charging eight hundred dollars for this, yeah. and that, that'll fix right. your problems. If you had that problem, you really couldn't solve it by just changing the price. You'd have to figure out something else. Watch your cost structure. Watch mm-hmm. your volume. Something else. Yeah, exactly. Or minimize. Or think about it. Think about removing the insurance company from the mix, if that makes sense. So right now we've we've chosen. I mean, it's just it's the. I think it's the right thing to do. Is that how do I increase my reach and my impact? Well, most people have health insurance. Most people want to use that health insurance for their healthcare services. Therefore, it's the way I currently impact my reach and impact is that we are we try to be in network with insurance plans so that we can reach as many people as possible. If that dynamic becomes problematic where we can't run a financially profitable or successful organization in that model, you know, we could go to a model where it's more sort of self-pay mindset and period in a sentence. Uh, some of the conditions that we treat are more just sort of quality of life issues. doesn't make them less important. It's just sort of a reality that there are analogies for some of what we do to other services that are delivered outside of the insurance 
landscape. So as a specific example, LASIK surgery. So if you, if you, if you can't see properly and you want to get a surgery to correct that versus using eyeglasses, you can have a procedure done. That insurance isn't going to cover that procedure. You're going to pay for that out of pocket. Quality of life issue, important. I mean, what's, what's if seeing clearly is very, very important. And so that's an example of an industry that's sort of gone in a bit of a different direction that way, healthcare-wise. So in terms of, of coming up with these new locations, were they financed? I mean, did you have some creative financing to get it done? Were you buying other clinics that already existed? Were you building them from scratch? Is it easy? I know, for example, in the dental industry, I believe you can basically finance almost 100% of, of your new dental practice. Is there a financing system in place that's been working for you? Or has that changed over time? It's changed over time to some extent, but we've always been sort of bootstrap self-financed just through our operating margins. And so, you know, though, as we look in a forward direction, that, that will likely change. I guess from, you know, when, it, when I say that, what I mean is that, that it's a constraint that's worked well for our growth up till now. But in a move forward direction, if we want to be expanding at a, at a more rapid rate, as an example, then we're not going to be able to self-finance in a move forward direction. But on the flip side, I'd say we've gotten to, we've grown ourselves to a significant enough company where, you know, I think taking on debt, those sorts of things is going to be, it's not going to be easy, but it's just going to be a different way of doing things, I guess. No, it's much easier to finance a 260 person company than it is to finance a six person company. <laughs> Absolutely. No question. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And are you building these from scratch or are you, are you buying clinics and, and changing them? Mostly from scratch. So there we've done last year, we did two acquisitions. And so that was the first time we've ever done that. And so acquired two practices and integrated them over the course of, of last year. And, you know, that, that's one way of doing it. I mean, although when we do that, our practice is really, we go direct to consumer. It's, it's a focused practice focused in our messaging. And so when we acquire practices, it's not acquiring them to just do typical ENT work. It's acquiring them to say, hey, do you want to adopt our model? And that's what we've done. And so it's kind of acquiring a practice, having a new physical location, having you know staff and physicians, and then rebranding those to Advent and um, you know kind of going from there. So yeah. I almost think this can play nicely into a franchise model. Is that something you guys have looked at? We've looked at it. So we looked at it. I, you know, literally brought on a consultant, did the whole thing. You know, we got, I think we've shut it down at this point, but we, we were in about 2018. I believe we were legal to sell in not all 50 states, but like 45 states or something. And so it works well. Although, you know, who knows what the right answer is, is I think what I kind of came upon towards the end of that discovery phase was sort of the, I heard some good stories before I went down that road. And then I heard some really sort of bone chilling stories on the back end of that. And I was like, okay, this is probably the risk involved with that is significant. And I think in the, and maybe I'm wrong. I, I think in the healthcare space in, in particular, there's sort of constraints that don't exist if you're making sandwiches or other franchisable areas. So I think that's where it gets a little tricky. You know, honestly, so I, I don't know. I mean, it, we've looked at that option because it is very, it's very, it could fit with what we're doing. It's just pros and cons. So, yeah. if, if somebody gets a bad Subway sandwich, it's not going to, it's not going to be the end of the world. If somebody has a botched procedure, yeah. a medical right. procedure, that could be bad for the whole operation. Absolutely. 
and what exists is that you can't the corporation can't be practicing medicine. So, you know, meaning that the, it's the physician, it's the providers are practicing medicine. And so if you have a, the more detached relationship you have to those, those folks, the more likely it is to just run into trouble, either them just trying to, you know, just kind of going rogue and doing things however they want to do them. And there's not really anything you can do to prevent that, if that makes sense. And that's a problem. But I, I mean, I've definitely studied that. I mean, I, I kind of mentioned I'd, Prior to emeth and, and traction, I was fairly ignorant. But I, I I've read and studied like thousands of books at this point. It's kind of my obsession is sort of this <laughs> this, this business side of things. So well, I just watched the the founder again for like the fifth time and Ray Kroc's autobiography and Jeff Bezos. All these people that on the franchising concept, I think looking at the troubles that they've run in, like McDonald's, like the the granddaddy of them all, and how big of a struggle that was, you know, out of the gate, how problematic it was. And I just think in the medical arena, it just, it's really hard. So, yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a quick story. A friend of mine had owned until recently a big, a multi, a 200 location franchise. I, I don't want to say what they did because I don't want to give it away, but owned a, a number of locations. And what he said was towards the end, the company's been acquired now, but towards the end, the last couple of years, franchisees, let's say, would go out of business for whatever reason. They weren't operating their cash or they weren't doing well. So they would shut it down. And the bank would actually look badly on the corporation and say, Oh, you guys aren't doing well. And my friend would say, Well, hold on a second. That wasn't me. That was just this independent <laughs> franchisee out right. in Missouri. And so it's the, the brand itself started to get tarnished because of random franchisees not doing so well. So yeah, it, all sorts of things like that happen. Yeah, and I don't, and I know there's a positive spin on that, but that that right there, and there's so many other very so other so many other variations just like that, where a brand is a brand, and to the consumer or to other business associates, it should be viewed as a singular thing. And when it, I guess it's it's almost like you can't really have it both ways. Can you really have it? You know, I think in the ideal world, from a franchising standpoint, you get the perfect storm of. Hey, here are proven processes. Here's a brand, a, a well, you know, honed brand. Hey, you're an entrepreneur. Let's join forces. We'll take your, we'll take your money, your investment. We'll take your time and your dedication, and you know, we'll make great things. And I think what I've seen, at least in, as I studied it, is I think what ends up happening is, is people are people, and and those those entrepreneurs that are buying these franchises and putting the sweat into them, at some point in time, start to resent the franchisor. And it's almost like a, it's my butt on the line here. I'm here at 6am doing all this. And I've got to pay whatever the royalty, you know, whatever that economic uh, arrangement is, and you kind of get pissed at it or chippy at it, I feel like and then vice versa, like your friend, it's the vice versa. It's like, hey, I didn't screw it up. Our processes work, they screwed it up. And yet you both held accountable for each other yet. So that's where I'm like, I don't know, I, I guess to me, it's like the franchising model. I think it works well when it works well. And I think to me, it's almost like as the wheels are about to fall off is the time you need to get the hell out of there and, and you know, hand it off to somebody else so that there's almost like this nobody to blame kind of thing. But maybe somebody's got a better story than that. But it, it concerned me. What are your days like now? How, how do you spend your time in, in the business? You know, mostly so I'm clinical just one day a week. So I practice medicine on Thursdays and everything else. Medicine? Yeah, I still do. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have thought so. Well, it's hard to keep that, keep a firewall around that, but it allows me to connect to my company and my patients in a way that there is no, there's nothing like it. So I, I still do that. And then around that though, 
it's the typical CEO, CEO stuff, meetings, you know, it's a, it's a constant evolution. So at any, any given day, it's a whole, you know, my schedule today will look nothing like my schedule does tomorrow, but it's great. I mean, I think the thing that I've loved, I mean, my life has been one massive blessing. And for me, the blessing in the constant, this constant challenge, the constant renewal, I'm always reinventing what I get to do. And as my career has gone on, I feel guilty sometimes as, as really it is my role at this point to seed things that either that I'm, I'm not, it's, that's not highest and best use of my time. And so if I'm good in, being good to the company, I need to be good to myself and I need to protect myself and my time, which is the back to this franchising thing, which is the exact opposite of kind of the first 15 years, more than that, 17 years of the practice. So those first 17 years was my needs don't exist, whatever, like, you know, and especially in medicine is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I was on and available to all of my patients, to the company, to everything. So I guess what I'm saying is now I've been able to get into a position where I feel like I'm, I've sort of recovered from some of that burden. And, and now it's the fun part, which is like, hey, can we take this thing? Because I want to take this thing far and wide. And so what's your five or 10 year horizon? Coast to coast. I mean, I want to take this thing coast to coast. And so I kind of combine those two things together. So in order to take this thing coast to coast, what I need to do is I need to focus on strategy. I need to focus on vision and communicating that vision. And I need to surround myself with people who can do the work that's necessary to go. And it's not, it's not going to be a straight line, but to go like for really, I think about 12 to 18 month increments. And in the 12, for the 12, 18 months ahead, what are we going to do as a company and who do I need? And do they have the capability? And then kind of keeping on doing that. But back to this sort of e-myth and traction, all these things. But you know, the reality is I can never, there was a time where I could by myself, you know, put this organization on my back and do whatever we needed to do. We've gotten past that point, which is both scary and, and sort of freeing, but we gotten that past that point. So I know there's no way that I can do everything that needs to be done to make this organization successful. And you can either be scared by that comment or be freed by that comment. And it's, it's freeing, especially again, I, I think for most of your listeners who are kind of in that entrepreneur mode is taking something from nothing to something zero to one. It's a very, very hard thing then to have the opportunity to kind of stay on that ride and, you know, kind of take it beyond that is something that it's rare air. And I'm fortunate to be breathing that air. And I'm, and I love every breath because it's, it's with the, juxtaposition of my current existence to my existence to my former existence was, is kind of everything. And then, you know, for all of the entrepreneurs that out there, as hard and as scary and as taxing as that early phase was, there are all those things. Those are the best times of my life were those, if that makes sense. So it is the journey, but it doesn't, and it doesn't seem like that in the midst of it. But again, for me, it's been just a, a joy the entire, entire journey. People often think and they really put their mind on, oh, here's where I'm going to be in five years. Here's where I'm going to be in 10 years. And it's great to have those goals, but always enjoy the journey. I can think back over my last 10, 15 years building my business. Those were great times. And yeah, some were stressful. And some days I came into the office thinking, oh my Lord, are we going to be around in a week from now? Yeah. And you, you, you have all kinds of moments. And you have to fire people and hire people. But that journey is what sets you up for where you are today. And frankly, if I just said to you, hey, here's the finished product, here's a coast to coast, you know, business yeah. without any of the work, that would not be fun. That's not why we're doing this. It's it's the journey that matters. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think we all will fool ourselves into thinking that, no, if I could snap my fingers and make it so, I mean, I think honestly, if I could snap my fingers and make it so, I probably would, uh, you know, even despite everything I just said, because it, it it's it's the easy button. But I think then, yeah, it you lose the journey part of things. And so for me, it's a weird dynamic because I'm, as a specific example, I don't want to constrain this company. And if, if I am no longer the best leader for this organization, I will be the first person to put my hand up and let's go look to find somebody who's, who can come in. So I want to get out of the way if I'm not bringing it, but believe me today, I'm bringing it. And though, on the flip side is I want to ride this wave for as long as I can ride it because someday the wave will, will crash and it will end. And everything at the end of the day is fleeting time, you know, moves on and, and so forth and so on. But it is that, you know, it's the si- same sort of thing. I've got three kids and my first child was born three months before we started Advent. And so she's really exactly the same age as Advent. She's a freshman in college. And as hard as it was to run a business, start a business, raise three children all at the same time. Those are the special moments. I've got three pretty darn grown kids and they'll go on and move on with their life. But we will always, I will always cherish the hard times when they were small. Although when you're in it, it's really, it's hard. It really is hard. But the the thing that you have to remember is, you know, you said a moment ago, if you could snap your fingers and be coast to coast, you would do it. But then what you would be doing is trying to think of the next mountain to climb. Your brain wouldn't turn off. I know people that had 20 years ago, you have a million dollar company. Now it's a hundred million dollar company. But all you're thinking about is how do I get to a billion? You're you're not saying great, I'm done. You're just no. thinking about what what the next hurdle is. Yeah, exactly. I guess I'd say that's a great mindset to have. It's a rare mindset to have. It makes life vivid and, and worth living, honestly, and for good or for bad. I mean, I think for entrepreneurs, there often is the focus on success and and things that work out. You know, in that success, there, I mean, I've got thousands and thousands of failures, bad decisions. I don't regret any of them necessarily, but it's more just like those don't get talked about. And, and I think though, I mean, it's kind of the man in the arena quote kind of a concept. There, there is something about being in the arena that is special. And in life itself, most people are never truly in the arena. Entrepreneurs are in the arena by definition. And, just to have that experience, it's worth the price of admission. Life is short. Life is fleeting. It's a worthy initiative for those who are made of the right stuff. And I think if you are doing it, all respect is due. And even if you fail, I mean, fail by conventional definition, all respect is still due, without a doubt. Fail in the arena. Fail in the arena. Because if you're in the arena, at least you're fighting the battle. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know we probably have to wrap up here soon, but I was just... My eldest daughter goes to Tulane and I was just down there this weekend at the, they have a book fest going on. So Walter Isaacson, who wrote Steve Jobs biography, he's writing, he's currently shadowing Elon Musk, Elon Musk. He's been his, his biography. And he was being interviewed by Kara Switzer. Yep. The, Kara Swisher. Swisher. That's exactly right. Exactly. So anyway, very interesting juxtaposition of personalities. But the common thread is, is Kara kept coming in with the mindset of because she's got a mindset that um, basically all of these people are evil. And, you know, I think she's kind of evolved over, but she really thinks that they're evil. And especially Elon Musk. I think she plays it up a little bit for the podcasts. I, I think so. But regardless, so it was kind of that sort of thing. Walter Isaacson was sort of like, you know, no, 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 not evil, complex. Human beings are complex. And, you know, basically he made a statement a couple of times is, 
journalists like us will never understand what it's like to be in, in the arena. And so would you rather have a flawed person in the arena who creates something that otherwise wouldn't be created? Or would you rather have a kind person who isn't really in the arena, but is, is sort of nice to everybody, never accomplishes anything? And at the end of the day, I think we can all say we would rather have the kind of like Steve Jobs wasn't the nicest person around. Elon Musk, uh, I'm sure at times is not the nicest person around. Yet they've done things that are phenomenal. And people are complicated. People are complex. We're all better off. I guess my point being is we're all better off for all of people who are out there in the arena getting stuff done without any question. And yet there are going to be so many critics that aren't in the arena. And many of those critics who are that, that they're, who are so critical are so critical because they envy the fact that others are in the arena and they're not and they'll never be if that makes any sense. So yeah. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. I think a lot of people listening are going to be uh, are going to agree. A lot of people aren't. But hey, that's... that's uh, fine. <laughs> I, I, I think you're definitely on point in that I don't need to want to have a beer with Steve Jobs. I just want the iPhone. And that's what he was out to do. He wasn't trying to be a great guy and that's okay, you know? Yeah. So I'm all for that. Dr. Kendula, this was fantastic. Where can people uh, learn more about Advent and about you? Adventnose.com is our is our website. I'm most active on LinkedIn, but I kind of go in, you know, little waves. So I'm currently in a dip where I don't think I posted in, in, in a few months, but LinkedIn is a good place to sort of see other content from me. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy episodes like this, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, follow me on Twitter at Real John Davids. We'll see you next time.